Welcome to the Friday Night Clive podcast with me, Clive Payne. In this podcast, we look back at the amazing charities, organisations and people we have chatted to over the past few months, all of whom have interesting and important stories to tell. Now, we've all heard about children experiencing ADHD, but what is it and how does it affect them? Um, Some people say it's part of the autistic spectrum, and we also hear a lot about that as well. But would you be surprised to learn, as I was, that ADHD can also affect adults as well? On the line to tell me more about that is Dr. Tony Lloyd, who's the CEO of the neurodiversity charity, the ADHD Foundation, and he joins me now. Good evening, Tony. Good evening, Clive. Thank you very much for joining me this evening. Um, for anybody who's unfamiliar with ADHD, what does that um, acronym stand for? Uh, rather unfortunately, it's a very negative acronym, actually, Clive. It stands for Attention Deficit and Hyperactivity Disorder. Okay, so can you try and define that for me, please? Okay, well, <clears throat> the um, people with ADHD, children and adults have difficulty sustaining concentration so they can be very forgetful they can forget things that they've learned for example um but they can also um be impulsive but not just impulsive of word or action but impulsive of emotion and impulsive of thought so one of the things that is associated with that is you 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 can often have a racing mind your mind is constantly on the go um which can affect your sleep um can also make you anxious sometimes because it's difficult to to relax for some people um and for some people as well also hyperactivity but those three things those three core elements uh, are really a very sort of a simple definition it can actually affect people in in quite impairing ways um you know, you can get very anxious about the fact that you're very forgetful. Um, if you've got a job to do that requires sustained concentration, um, you can get very anxious because you're having to work twice as hard to try and stay focused. But it's not really an attention deficit. It's more of an attention surplus. And if I can explain that by using the analogy, if you were in a room and there were six televisions playing and they were all playing different channels, but you were trying to watch one, it would be very difficult to focus and pay attention to the one that you want to watch because those other five are distracting you. And ADHD is a bit like that. It's a, it, it's a difficulty filtering out lots of other um, environmental stimulus, whether it's noise or movement or anything else like that, that can impair your ability to concentrate. But we know that for many adults, particularly those who are identified as children that undiagnosed and unmanaged ADHD can make you more vulnerable to things like anxiety and depression. Mm. Um, It can also make you more vulnerable um, to things like um, eating disorders, um, obsessive compulsive disorder. And your point earlier on about the the, the crossover with um, autism is actually correct. There is a very strong genetic link between autism and ADHD. Um, and we know that many people with autism also meet the diagnostic criteria for ADHD. ADHD affects one in 20 people. It's a lot more common than a lot of people realise. Yes, it sounds it clearly. So where does the ADHD Foundation fit into all this and and what do you do? 
We are um, a, a national charity that we deliver sort of training and uh, regional projects across the UK. Um, we have a unique multidisciplinary lifespan service in the Northwest, which we established 15 years ago because we wanted to demonstrate what a model looked like where a family could get the kind of guidance and information that they need, whether it related to the education of their child or the mental health of their child or indeed the parents, because we know that um, ADHD is quite heritable um, and it sits with a number of what are called neurodevelopmental conditions like dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia, and they frequently co-occur. So often people with, it's quite common for people with ADHD to also have dyslexia, for example, and what we wanted to do was be able to demonstrate how all of those things could be understood in one context because historically what used to happen was people say, well, we don't deal with that, but you need to go to health services for that, or you need to go to education for that, or you need to go to social care for that. And often there wasn't that understanding about how um, ADHD can impact on your life or the life of your family, not just in, in relation to your child's education. Um, and again, because there's been a lot of myth and stigma about ADHD historically, that it was about naughty, fidgety boys, which is complete nonsense. Um, we know that um, ADHD affects one in 20 people. Um, we know that often there was this bias towards boys and we've often overlooked girls, um, which has had an impact on their educational achievement, but also on their mental health in later life so we take a strength-based approach so we don't just talk about some of the challenges that go with ADHD and there are some challenges but you know you also have to look at some of the other research that says the people we used to call workaholics the business owners and the entrepreneurs there's research evidence that says over 30 percent of business owners and entrepreneurs have either ADHD or dyslexia or both or university graduates with ADHD are twice as likely to start their own business. So there are a lot of people who do lead happy, healthy and successful lives with ADHD and we decided we wanted to help people get as much information that was balanced uh, so that they could learn how to manage ADHD successfully and lead happy, healthy lives, be good at their jobs, be economically independent, um, to be able to live a healthy lifestyle and know how to manage ADHD successfully because it's not just about taking medication um, at all. There's a lot, of, a lot of things involved in managing ADHD well. So we wanted to be able to hear what the, the experience was of families who are impacted by ADHD and give them the right information and the encouragement and the support they needed to manage it successfully. Now, I mean, based on your research and your experience, uh, what what actually causes it? Is it genetic? Is it a chromosome thing? Or, or you know, tell me more. It is genetic, Clive. Yes, you're correct. It is genetic. And we know that there are about 78 different genes involved in ADHD. Um, but it's important to point out that while... In the majority of cases, people are, are born with ADHD. It's not as if we have genes or people who have ADHD have different genes to somebody else. It just means that there are certain genes that are 
expressed in a slightly different way or in a slightly more amplified way. So, for example, when we're talking about children, I'm sure every one of your readers will say, well, what child isn't hyperactive and what child isn't inattentive? Of course, what ch children are impulsive, all children are like that. It's when it becomes pervasive and to an extent where it actually starts to cause real difficulty. Um, now, we know that it causes children a great deal of distress because they go to school every day and they're being asked to display you know, cognitive skills and competencies that they might find more difficult than their, their peers in the classroom. But it's got nothing to do with them having a low IQ. Um, it's just about the fact that their brains in childhood are developing at a couple of years behind their peers. Um, and while they do catch up when the brain reaches full maturity in early 20s, some of those characteristics will stay with them throughout their lives. But environmental factors do matter. So a child who experiences a lot of trauma, for example, um, that is going to exacerbate their ADHD. Um, so we know that having parents who are informed know how to parent a child who has that learning difference um, we know that teachers who are better trained better informed know how to enable children with ADHD in a classroom to achieve their academic potential um, and of course for the individual um, certainly once they get into teenage years uh, and for adults understanding how ADHD can affect you and what kind of lifestyle choices you make to manage it well all help with that so a good diet plenty of sleep you know particularly making sure you eat meals at breakfast time um, you know uh, daily stress reduction strategies because we do know a lot of people with ADHD do experience um, a, a sort of a, a low level of anxiety all the time and for adults when they you know when they choose a career when they finish their education they'll often choose jobs that play to their strengths so many adults don't experience as much difficulty as they did as children but then there are some adults that do and we've seen an example of that in the past few years with the pandemic where all of those supportive structures that people had in place to stay well in their lives whether it was exercise going out to an office having structure and routine being around other people um you know being able to go to the gym having time to spend with friends during the pandemic a lot of those lifestyle supporting factors um, were taken away from people because of lockdown, obviously, and a lot of people who've been managing quite well up until that point found themselves struggling. So it is about understanding yourself, how ADHD impacts on you. Um, not everybody is hyperactive, not everybody is impulsive, not everybody is inattentive. You can have a combination of those three core characteristics, but it can affect you in ways like planning and organizing, budgeting your finances, um, you know, remembering that you have appointments and things like that. So there are lots of things that you can do to help you manage it more successfully. You mentioned earlier on medication. What other treatments are there as well as that? Well, medication is by far the most effective, and I know there's been a lot of myth and, and, and stigma attached to medication for ADHD. Um, there was this idea 
that was kind of appeared in a lot of the newspapers in the 80s about, oh, well, it's a, it's a pill to make children behave, um, or, you know, that can turn them into zombies, which, of course, is complete nonsense. Yeah. There is no such thing as a morality pill. All an ADHD medication does is it enables your brain to think more clearly, um, which then means that every child or young person, for example, in school, is more likely to process what the consequences might be of not looking before they cross the road or just being able to remember their homework, for example. Um, so in terms of its ability to impact on people's lives, I think really it is about understanding that even in adulthood, you're still an individual. ADHD doesn't define you, but it does actually affect how you process information from your environment, where you live, the people who you're surrounded by. Um, somebody said it's a bit like driving a Ferrari with bicycle brakes, uh, was one interesting analogy. Mm. Um, but I think it's really important to understand as well that you know there are many people who see it as when it's well managed potentially as an asset there are lots of very successful people in the media for example there are lots of very successful sportsmen and women um, i mentioned before about business owners and entrepreneurs you'll find people with adhd in every walk of life but not everybody needs medication and not everybody wants to take medication i think the thing about medication is all it does is it helps your brain function a little bit more effectively. It doesn't make you like a zombie, and if that's the effect it has on somebody, then either the dose is too high or they need to be on a different type of medication. But in terms of the effectiveness of them, they are one of the most effective uh, medicines that have ever been produced. They have what's called an effect size of 0.9. When you compare that to the effect size of antidepressants, which is 0.3 out of a possible one, then you know that ADHD medications actually do what they say on the tin. Um, but it's important that people understand what ADHD medications can and can't do for them. They're not a neurological Eldorado. They don't want to sort out every problem that you have in your life. They would just help you process information in mm. your brain um, more effectively. I think, um, I think as well, it, it's about manage, managing your own expectations because people think... For example, with antidepressants, they're going to make you well overnight. They don't. Uh, they take about six weeks to, to take effect. Um, uh, and uh, even then, it helps you to manage life and the things that are affecting you, you know, in, in a much better way. And I guess ADHD medication works in a similar way. But I guess there are consequences for untreated ADHD. I, mean, I, I would imagine that would impact an individual. Yes, I mean, and, and the thing is, this is where we say medication isn't the only thing you need to manage ADHD well. Um, I mentioned before, I mean, it's not a morality pill. It doesn't help children behave. That's not how it works at all. I think we often mistake the fact that sometimes in a classroom, if a child is fidgeting all the time, what a lot of teachers don't realise is that the reason they're fidgeting is that when we move, we produce more of this neurotransmitter called dopamine, which helps you concentrate. So when children are fidgeting or getting out of their chair, it's actually helping them concentrate. I never knew that. Them to sit still is, is, yeah, it's counterintuitive. Um, but we also know that, you know, the earlier we identify it, the earlier we support it, the better. 
And we know that children who were diagnosed early and given medication have far better outcomes, not just in terms of educational achievement, but are less likely, for example, to start smoking, um, are less likely to have an unplanned pregnancy in teenage years, are less likely to misuse alcohol or cannabis. Um, and if they do as well as they are capable of in school, then they're going to make a successful transition to university or employment. Um, so there are, we know that when children are identified early, that their life chances are significantly better. Now, we know there are a lot of people who are missed in childhood um, and don't find out until they're adults or they don't realise till they're adults. Or there are many parents out there who've ended up getting the diagnosis because their child has gone through that process and they've realised themselves because we know that there is a very strong heritability factor where if a parent has ADHD, there's a very strong possibility that their child will mm. but again everybody's unique and our environment does impact how adhd presents so i mentioned before about you know there are a lot of adults that don't use adhd medication because they've chosen careers where they don't need it um but there are lots of people who work in very professional jobs i know i know personally barristers i also know psychiatrists community pediatricians who've got adhd who take medication um, it really depends on your lifestyle. But as I say, medication is designed to help you function cognitively. It helps your brain process information in a more effective way. Um, it, it shouldn't be used on its own. Um, but there are many people who manage ADHD without medication. So it is very much about knowing yourself, your circumstances, and understanding the extent to which ADHD is impacting on your life. Um, I've known of people who've managed their ADHD successfully, have never had medication, and they've been in their 30s, 40s, and life events have just hit them, one after the other, mm. um, pressure upon pressure, and that's the point at which um, their ADHD really begins to affect them because they don't have that same level of resilience to deal with it perhaps as other people do but it is very much about what's right for the individual and helping the individual learn how to manage it successfully for themselves because as i mentioned before lots of people do lead happy healthy and successful lives with adhd for some people medication is a part of that if that's what mm -hmm. they think they need and the clinician agrees with them then you know why not sure now tell me about the qb test that's something right. that, that, well, that people yeah. can, can sort of take part in, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, historically, the way we've assessed and diagnosed ADHD is we'll ask a patient a whole series of questions about themselves, what they were like as, as a child, how they managed with key tasks like focusing, concentration, things like that at school, um, their ability to emotionally regulate um, and, and allow, you know, have the ability to park their feelings in order to deal with the task in hand. Um, and sometimes it's difficult, certainly for children with ADHD, to do that, um, but also for some adults as well. When we're assessing ADHD in children, we're asking teachers and parents to give us feedback. But often that feedback is biased. The teacher might say, well, this child is not badly behaved. I'm saying, well, 
we're not looking for children who badly behave. What we're looking to find out is, do they have difficulty with their cognitive functioning? You know, are they able to process information and understand instructions and not be forgetful, etc.? Um, so sometimes the, the the observational feedback that you can get from parents and teachers can have a bias to it, and sometimes the information that you get from an adult patient that it might look like ADHD, but in fact they're experiencing really severe anxiety because when you're experiencing severe anxiety, Clive, I bet you you find yourself forgetting things, feeling a bit disorganized, a bit distracted, mm. um, possibly even a little bit agitated. Um, what looks like ADHD can sometimes not be ADHD. It can be acute anxiety. But the anxiety, if that's what's causing it, will pass. Whereas if it's ADHD, we know that it's always going to be there. So a QB test was... Um, brought into the UK about 12 years ago. The foundation was one of the first organizations to use it. And what it does, it's a simple 20-minute exercise on a computer that is very, very easy to do. But what it does, it produces a report that actually explains in a statistical way what your brain function is. Now, that's very different from your observational questionnaires that tell us about how your behavior is presenting so i mentioned before what might look like anxiety could be adhd but actually it might not be adhd if you are experiencing acute anxiety the thing about a qb test is it tells us what is happening in the brain as opposed to how you are managing in terms of your behavioral presentation. And a good example of that would be, um, you know, I've had both children and adults who've done a QB test and they will score very highly for that cognitive impairment or difficulty, but appear on the observational rating scales to be managing their lives quite well. So we know they've got ADHD, but they're managing quite well. We know they don't necessarily need medication. Um, they just need information about managing a healthy lifestyle and how, particularly how to manage stresses and things like that. So, so if there are other occasions where the cognitive profile or the QB test result indicates that there is um, a moderate level of cognitive impairment, but the presentation in terms of how it's impacting on that individual's life, be they child or adult, can be much more impairing. So having both that measure of brain function and the assessment in terms of how it affects our, our daily lives and daily functioning is important for a clinician to decide what advice to give the patient on the best way to, for them to manage ADHD. So it's really helpful and it's objective, of course. I'm conscious of the time. I do want to just explore with you briefly um, who is likely to suffer with ADHD the most? Is it males or females? Because you said earlier on it was always, and I'll put in quotes here, naughty boys. But I, I, I guess it can affect females. What's the sort of you know ratio between the two? Well, it's a really good question, Clive. Um, Traditionally, we've diagnosed four boys to one girl, but actually 
that's probably because of gender bias because ADHD presents differently in girls and women. Girls tend to be, well, in school, much more mature than boys. So their behaviour is much more sort of regulated. Um, they also tend to internalise anxiety more than boys. So girls are more inclined to things like anxiety and depression as a consequence of unmanaged ADHD. So we've done girls and women a great disservice and we know that for undiagnosed women, they are more vulnerable to anxiety and depression. They're more vulnerable to um, overeating and obesity. Um, they're more vulnerable to um, things like postnatal depression, for example. That's not all women with ADHD, but many women with ADHD. So we are beginning to come to the conclusion that perhaps there are maybe as many women as there are men, but the presentation is different. Um, and certainly the evidence that we have over the past couple of years is there are, in terms of new adult diagnoses, there are as many women now being diagnosed as there are men. But again, it's that thing, isn't it, about, you know, lots of people are managing it well. I think with anything, Clive, you know, when you have some kind of challenge, once you know what it is and you understand it, and you understand why you do certain things or act in certain ways or struggle with certain tasks, then you can learn how to manage them successfully when you know what you're dealing with. But there are many adults there, especially many women, who've not ever thought for a second they might have ADHD because they don't identify with that stigmatizing stereotype of, well, I wasn't a naughty child, I wasn't a fidgety naughty boy. Um, and unfortunately, that myth has endured and actually prevented a lot of people. But, I mean, you know, you use the, you use the word suffer. Um, you know, there are many, many people with ADHD who don't see themselves as suffering with ADHD. They don't identify as disabled. Um, they don't see ADHD. It's not a mental illness. It's a neurodevelopmental condition. But if not managed well then that neurodevelopmental condition can make you vulnerable to other physical mm. and mental health problems. And certainly we've seen now a significant increase in the number of girls and particularly adult women who are coming forward for a diagnosis. What we want is not for people to pathologize themselves, not for people to think that everything that they've got difficulty with in their lives is because of their ADHD but to understand it, understand how it affects them and give them the right kind of knowledge and information so that they can learn how to manage it successfully uh, and lead happy and, uh, and fulfilled lives. And if for some of those people medication is a part of that, then fine, if that's what they need, um, then that's what they should have. It's a relatively simple thing to diagnose and a relatively simple thing to treat and manage well. It's just about having the right information. Well, let's come on to diagnosis now for uh, any parents who are listening to us now thinking that their, their child or young person that they have responsibility for is experiencing a lack of co uh, cognition. Um, what's the first step that they should take? The first step they should take is to talk with, just for a meeting with the school, talk to the child's form tutor, possibly the school nurse, and explore whether their child is experiencing any difficulty with learning. So forget about this thing about behaviour because there's no such diagnosis as behaviour and children behave in different ways for all kinds of different reasons. What we're talking about here is a difficulty 
with the kind of tasks that they're being asked to do in school. And anxious children do tend to um, behave in ways that are not always appropriate to the classroom. You know, being forgetful, forgetting your homework, fidgeting, not being able to sit in your seat, you know, all the time. That's not intentional behavior that they've been told not to do. It's, it's, it's instinctive for them to fidget. It's, they cannot help but be forgetful. Um, when they're given an instruction, adults will assume that the child is not doing as they're told, but quite often the child has not heard what the adult is saying or processed it, or they may have just forgotten it straight away. Mm. That's not the same as ignoring instructions from an adult. So, again, intention is really important here. If the child isn't doing what we're asking them to do, it's our job as adults, whether we're parents or teachers, to show them and enable them to do what it is that we want them to do. And if they are really struggling with that, to try and find out what is the barrier to them learning how to follow instructions or, you know, act safely or be considerate of the children or understand that the work they've got to do for school is important and has to be completed and has to be in on time. And often we don't, you know, I mean, one in 10 children have dyslexia, but only two out of every 10 children who have dyslexia are ever screened in school. The other eight will struggle all the way through school and be mistakenly assumed to be low ability underachieving exams, not because they've got a low IQ, but because nobody's ever identified their dyslexia. And I mentioned before, dyslexia frequently co-occurs with ADHD. So if I was a parent of a child, I would be talking to the teacher, I would be talking to the special needs coordinator, and I would be trying to discern from them in what ways my child was struggling at school. I would be trying to make sure I spend time with my child of an evening and trying to find out for myself what they have difficulty with and monitor that. And if those concerns persist, then, you know, you ask the school to support you in getting a referral made to the local um, ADHD service or the CAM service that would undertake that assessment. Um, and the teachers and the parent will be asked to fill out something called a rating scale questionnaire. Uh, but schools can also do a version of QB test called QB check. It's not as sophisticated as QB test. Um, QB check can be done by a special needs coordinator in a school. It's a simple test. It's relatively inexpensive. I think it's about £40. Pounds. Um, and that QB test will give them an objective report on the child's cognitive functioning as opposed to how they appear to be behaving in class. You know, um, children in fight or flight mode don't always fight or flight. Sometimes they do fight or flight in a sort of way, like avoiding things, mm -hmm. you know, um, asking the teacher to help, can they hand the books out at the beginning of the lesson because it's less time they have to spend on a lesson. Um, or children will often say, well, I've, got a, I've got a tummy ache because actually they're really quite anxious about the lesson, but they don't understand that. They can only tell you what it feels like to them. So what we have to do is try and understand that whatever way children behave, that is communicating something to us. So parents need to work closely with the school and they need to play as an active role as possible in enabling their child to access an education. And if those concerns persist, 
ask for a referral to the local um, CAMS service to have their child assessed by a community paediatrician who can make an accurate diagnosis and based on all the information that they've been given and possibly a QB test which is used in 60% of clinics now in England, then that will help them make an informed decision about what the extent of the difficulty is and what is the right way to treat or support that child. But it's not the do- you know, it's not just the doctor's job, it's the parent's job and the teacher's job. Um, and it isn't always easy, particularly in girls, uh, it isn't always easy to identify. Um, it is a question of monitoring. But what I would like to say to parents is, you know, please be reassured. There isn't anything wrong with your child. What we've got to remember is that one in five human beings have either dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia, um, dysgraphia, ADHD, or autism. Um, There is an evolutionary reason why one-fifth of the human race have these brains that think differently. Um, They're not really disordered. They're not ill. Their brains just work in a different way. And we know that in a school setting, they're going to struggle with some of the things that are being asked of them in school. And that can cause them a great deal of distress. And that's really what we need to try and address teachers can adapt how they teach and learn as well as parents adapt how they parent lovely we're rapidly running out of time tony but where can we find out more information please well if you go on to the adhd foundation website give that a mention adhdfoundation.org.uk there are all kinds of free resources on there clive for parents and for teachers and there are e-booklets that they can download there are educational comics and workbooks for children, uh, for teenagers, and that will help them understand it in a way that's right for their age, uh, with lots of tips on how to manage it well, how to stay calm, how not to get stressed, how to do your homework. There's lots of information on there that's free of charge um, and, you know, free to download. That's splendid. Dr. Tony Lloyd, CEO of the ADHD Foundation, thank you very much for talking to Friday Night Live. That is your lot for this episode. You can catch the programme live every Friday night on Black Country Radio from 8pm. If you like our podcast, please subscribe by heading to blackcountryradio.co.uk forward slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. See you very soon. This is a Black Country Radio podcast, presented by Clive Payne and produced by Andy Caddick.